Holy Father, that's quite a prayer. Come quickly, King of Kings. It is our prayer. On the threshold of an uncharted journey, we do not know what lies before us. But today, may we hear your voice calling us to the very journey you have marked for us. There is a world we must reach for Jesus. Let us be clear about the heart of Jesus. And let your word be clear today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Ann Carlson sent this Associated Press story to the pastoral staff three weeks ago. 67-year-old Dorothy Fletcher from Liverpool, England, came over here, across the pond to this country. She's on the second leg of her flight from Philadelphia down to where her daughter is getting married, Orlando, Florida. Mid-flight, Philadelphia to Orlando, she is stricken with a heart attack. A cabin attendant urgently asked over the intercom, and I have heard these questions asked on a flight, is there a doctor on board? Whereupon one doctor stood up, presented himself. Another doctor stood up and presented herself. Another doctor and another until finally 15 doctors presented themselves. And needless to say, Mrs. Fletcher's life was saved. All because she happened to be on a flight with 15 cardiologists, heart specialists flying to Orlando for a medical convention. The word coincidence comes to mind, but I think the word fortunate is much better. The question is, will America be as fortunate? This great nation that has already embarked upon an uncharted flight into the new year. Will there be anybody aboard this flight who will stand up and say, I can help? And really, I'm not worried about anybody. I'm wondering about you. Last fall, I read a piece in the Adventist Review written by my friend, associate editor of the journal, Roy Adams. In this particular piece, he shares two quotations from two individuals. And I want to tell you, since, ever since reading that, their words have been percolating in my mind. And I've got to share these two quotations with you. The first one is so significant that I wanted you to have it in our brand new study guide for this journey that we embark upon today. If you'll open your worship bulletin, you will find the study guide there. We have some ushers here to make certain that everybody gets a copy. Just in case you came with two or three of you in one worship bulletin, I want to make sure the choir has study guides. This is a dynamite quotation with which we begin today. And so just hold your hand up. Those of you watching on television, if you will go to our website right now, this study guide is there. I'll put the address on the screen, www.notethenewaddress.pmchurch.tv. That makes it a little easier to remember, pmchurch.tv, and click on America Adrift. You hit that click, the study guide will be on the screen in front of you, and you can fill this out with us. Powerful words from Martin Luther, the mighty igniter 
of the great Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther wrote these words. You have to get two missing words in order for the quotation to be complete. So please note them carefully. Let's, let, let me read it to you. We'll put it on the screen for those of you watching. If This is Luther now. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point that the world and the devil are at the moment attacking. I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Now here come the two words you've got to write in. Where the battle rages, would you write in please the word battle? Where the battle rages is where the loyalty of the soldier, write in soldier, is proved. And Luther makes a very logical point. To be steady on all the battlefield besides... Everywhere else besides the point of conflict is merely, in essence, you are in flight and disgrace if the soldier flinches at the one point, the most critical point. You're fighting somewhere else and you have missed where the battle actually is. Wow. You know what, ladies and gentlemen, we're all on a battlefield, but it would be embarrassing if we, into this new journey, flail our little swords in the air and come to find out we're fighting the battle that, that, that is not even the battle that is the battle of the moment. The critical issue. We would be AWOL, absent without leave. And Luther says, he uses the word disgrace. Alright, so that's one quotation. The second quotation comes from Sandy Rios. She is president of Concerned Women for America in Washington, D.C., who recently predicted to a reporter that our society is facing what she calls a moral Armageddon. Armageddon, the final showdown between good and evil, between light and darkness. Is her prediction and warning hyperbole? We shall see. Soon enough, America adrift. The impending moral Armageddon. I love that graphic prepared by one of our university students, Nick Wolfer. Isn't that good? America adrift. Several years ago, I don't remember quite when, God spoke to me through a most unusual line of Scripture. And over and over again, I have felt my mind being drawn back to these very cryptic words. I want to share them with you. They are the theme words for our journey this new year. Open your Bible, please, to the Bible's longest chapter. What would that be? The Bible's longest chapter. Psalm 119. Just two chapters away from the Bible's shortest chapter, Psalm 117. Let's go to Psalm 119. Cryptic words. But I have pondered them over and over and over again. Psalm 119. In fact, you have to write this in for your study guide to be complete. Would you write in the verse, please? 126. Can you imagine 126 verses? There are actually 176 in that psalm. Psalm 119. Write in, please, 126. And I'm going to read in the New International Version. It is time for you to act, O Lord. Your law is being broken. If you combine the New International with the New American Standard Bible, you'll get what you're going to write in your study guide right now. It will read this way. Fill it in, please. It is time for you to act, O Lord. Write in the word act. For they have broken, they have broken your law. You know what, ladies and gentlemen, I am certain that those words were true millennia ago, but it occurs to me that they could never be more true than today. Hmm? 
It is time for you to act, O God. They have broken your law. Is it homiletical hyperbole to declare that we are witnessing today the most stunning assault on the moral law of God in history, bar none? Think about this for a moment. The five hottest hot-button issues in this year of the election. Although I don't know why we're having an election. Did you hear this last week? Pat Robertson has announced that God informed him that George Bush is going to win by a landslide. Seems to me that if God has already determined the outcome, we ought to just cancel the election and save the money. The five hottest moral issues, and they have now become political issues as well. And you better know where you stand concerning these five, because somebody, I promise you, between now and November is going to ask you, what do you believe about? Aren't you a Christian? What do you believe? Five hottest issues. Here they are. Gay marriages. The raging debate over gay marriages. Number two, the Episcopalian ordination of a practicing homosexual as bishop. Number three, the fear over the Ten Commandments in an Alabama courthouse. Number four, the Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under God. Number five, the bold infiltration of Darwinism into circles both Christian and Adventist. And at the heart of all five issues, you will find a common denominator. They all represent an assault. Stunning on the moral law of God. And you have to decide because you're going to get asked, what do you believe? And wouldn't you know it, simultaneously to this national meltdown of the moral law is a growing, do you feel this too? A growing sense of uneasiness in this country that terrorism may even now beyond, be beyond our control as well. Whew, we made it through the holidays. Nobody knows. No one knows. General Tommy Franks, the supreme commander of the invasion of Iraq, retired most recently, was quoted in Newsweek magazine with this startling admission. Take a look at this. This is General Tommy Franks. If that happens, well, what's that, Dwight? Well, you'll find out in just a moment. If that happens, the Western world, the free world, loses what it cherishes most, and that is the freedom and liberty we've seen for a couple of hundred years in this grand experiment that we call democracy. What in the world is he talking about? What could ever happen that would make us lose our cherished liberties in America? Now, Newsweek magazine, on its quotation page, now explains what it is General Tommy Franks is saying. Now, I'm quoting Newsweek, General Tommy Franks, on his belief that if the United States is hit with a weapon of mass destruction <clears throat> that inflicts large casualties, the Constitution would likely be discarded for a military form of government. You don't get it, do you? One of our brightest military generals admitting what some of us who have read the apocalypse and another apocalyptic classic called the Great Controversy have always believed, admitting that in a time of national crisis, our constitutional freedoms would be discarded, how did he put it, for a military form of government. I.E. So here's the strange coincidence. All the while... We are witnessing this stunning assault on God's moral law. I tell you what, it seems... Okay, look, it seems, all right? I'm not making any claim. It seems to be diabolically timed 
to match a national collapse of security in the faceless face of global terrorism. It's just all coming down that path. <laughs> you know what Tommy Franks is saying? He's saying, you know what, folks? We're really going to miss our Constitution, won't we? Oh, yeah, we will. A century ago, another writer, five times, five separate occasions, this writer made a prediction. Almost every time the wording is nearly identical. I want you to write it down in your study guide, please. This writer wrote national apostasy. Would you write in that word apostasy? Nash, and it's two S's, not a C. National apostasy will be followed by national ruin. Write in the word ruin. The stunning assault on God's moral law in this nation will precipitate the ruin of the United States of America. How does Psalm 119 read? Oh, it is time for you to act. Oh, Lord, your law is being broken. Question. What kind of people would cry these words? Answer. A people described by the ancient prophet Isaiah. You have to write the verse in. Isaiah 51, verse 7. Write in verse 7. I, I wish you would look this one up, please. Isaiah 51, <clears throat> verse 7. God is speaking to a people he, he identifies in a most peculiar way. Isaiah 51, right in the word verse, right in the number 7. And now here it comes. Isaiah 51, 7. God speaking. Hear me, you who know what is right. You people who have my law in your hearts. You people who have my law in your hearts. I like the way the New Living Translation renders this. In fact, I have it there in the study guide so you can keep it. Fill it in, please. The New Living Translation. Listen to me, you who know right from wrong and cherish my law in your hearts. Apparently, ladies and gentlemen, concurrently with impending national apostasy and ruin, God has a host of friends. If you want to call them a people, God has a people who have... Well, take a look at how the apocalypse describes them. Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. Take a look at this. The, this, call, this is at the end of time. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. You people who cherish my law in your hearts. Why would any man, why would any woman, why would any young adult be embarrassed if God came to you and said, you know what I like about you, sis? You cherish my law. Why would you be embarrassed with that? Why would you apologize and say, no, no, not me. I'm not big on God's law. Why would you ever say that? God will have a people who cherish my law, he says. It is that people that cry out the cry of Psalm 119. Verse 126. And here now is today's question. Is gay marriage really that? You could, you, you could put it another way. Is gay marriage either? Is it really happy? Is it really marriage? I realize 
And I wish you'd write this down, please. I realize how volatile this subject is for all of us. And how painful, write in the word painful, it is for some of us. Let me tell you what happened. I never, I've never mentioned this before, but in Net 98, from this very pulpit, our global satellite series to a hundred nations, I inserted a line that was not in my manuscript, nor in the 39 translators' manuscripts downstairs in the commons. And I did that by looking at the camera. And I said, I want to say to you, those of you who are watching right now who are homosexual, I want you to know that this community of faith is a place where you can belong, where you too can pursue a forever friendship with God. Just one line, I inserted it. Little realizing that that one line would engender some very strong and very critical male in response from around the world. I mean, what's the matter with you, huh? Are you in favor of homosexuality? Has the church gone soft on sin? Is that it? I mean, how can you say homosexuals are welcome in this church? I got some letters from some viewing globally homosexuals who thank me for being willing to speak up on their behalf. Ladies and gentlemen, the point is, I, I well realize that the moment we begin a conversation about gay marriage, we find ourselves caught in an inherent tension. On the one hand, there is God's loving embrace of all of us as sinners. And I have yet to be able to find that Bible text where God says, I need to know first, what is your sexual orientation before I can say whether I love you or not? I can't find that text. So on the one hand, we have God's embrace of all of us, hetero and homosexual sinners. And yet on the other hand, you feel the tension. I'm telling you, it is palpable. God's unmitigated wrath against sin. A God who is furious at anything that would destroy the one He loves. That's a tension. We've got to live with it. God loves us as sinners but despises all of our sins. I want to tell you something. Take a look at this graphic. Calvary is the measure of how deeply God feels about both. Hold that, hold, hold that screen up there for a moment. Take a look at that. That's Jesus sitting on the cross. You want to know how God feels about sin and sinners? You can go to the cross. That's the answer. You want to know how God feels about heterosexual sinners and homosexual sinners? Just go to the cross. That's a measure of how deeply He feels about both. Which, by the very sacred way, is why the church on earth ever remains a community of saved sinners who will battle their sins as they cling to their Savior until He comes. In a moment, I want to speak a word. A pastoral word to our homosexual viewers and worshipers. But once again, I must ask. I have to ask this. In fact, let me put up the cover of a recent Newsweek magazine. And you just look at that cover for a moment. And let me ask the question again. Is gay marriage, and this is a gay couple, identified by name right down there under the address label. Is gay marriage really that? Is it really happy? Is it really 
marriage? Is the sexual union between two homosexual partners a marriage? Let me, let me ask it another way. Is the sexual union between a father and his teenage daughter a marriage? Oh, we're pretty, we're pretty clear on that one, aren't we? No, Dwight, it's not a marriage, it's incest. Says who? Says society. Says God. Okay. But what if society decides to change its mind? What if society decides that it's okay for parents to have sexual relations with their children and eventually marry their own children if they want to? Oh, you say, that, that is absolutely impossible. Would that make incest right? Why, of course not. And yet, 50 years ago, you would have said the very same thing about homosexual marriage. But slowly, ever so slowly, over time, the media, Hollywood, and academia have been kneaded like pliant bread dough, kneaded by the most well-heeled and powerful lobby in America today. And 50 years later, now those three institutions are all saying, changed our mind. We changed our mind. What's going on? What's been happening? The gay lobbies is unabashedly clear about its social agenda. Hey, listen, we're not going to win you Christians. We're not going to win the church. Tell that to the Episcopalians, will you? We're not going to win the church, but we're going to get the government and we shall get society. So where does the church stand? You know what, my friend? That is the wrong question to be asking. You know what the question is? Write it down. Where does God stand? Let's find out. Let's just find out. Let's face it, for heterosexuals and homosexuals, there is a solitary moral law. One law. It's called the Ten Commandments. I'd like to go... Thank you, Kim, for leading us a moment ago in that uh, reading of the Ten Commandments. I'd like to go to the Seventh Commandment. Let's put it on the screen. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Fill it in in your study guide, please. The Seventh Commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Oh, sure. Pastor, fine, but what's adultery? Oh, that's a fair question. And in fact, God anticipated that very question and had Moses detail a legal answer for those who would quibble. That legal answer is found in Leviticus 18. Would you write in the number 18, chapter 18? We could call this a divine human definition of adultery. I would like you to see this chapter. It really is in your Bible. Leviticus chapter 18. Go back to the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 18. What is adultery? Let's find out. Leviticus 18. We'll pick it up in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, verse 2, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt. Listen, my friends, my people, don't get marinated in a fallen culture. You're coming out of that culture. You understand? Okay, so you must not do as they do in Egypt, nor as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. Okay, the government says it. Okay, society says it. Too bad. Do not follow. God is, is fairly uh, explicit here. Do not follow. Verse 4, you must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws. 
Now, from verse 16 through to verse 18, God defines adultery within the family circle. All right. This is all within the family circle. And God is very detailed here. We won't even read it all. Verse six. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Okay, nobody within the family can you have sexual relations with. Not your, not, not your father, not your mother, that would be verse 7. Not your father's wife, that would be verse 8. Not your sister, that would be verse 9. Not your son's daughter, that would be verse 10. So on and so on and so on and so on and so on. God goes, I tell you what, He doesn't leave anything to the imagination. He covers the whole tribe. Verses 6 through 18 are for the family. And then beginning in verse 20, God says, now, let's step outside the family. Let me define adultery outside the family. Verse 20, do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. She, sir, does not belong to you. Hands off. Don't touch her. Don't even avoid even the, the appearance of evil. Stay away. Okay? So that covers all the neighbors now, husbands and wives. Oh, by the way, verse 21, God says, if you please don't burn your babies in the fire. Well, that's just in case we were wondering. Verse 22. <laughs> that's just an insertion of God. Okay, verse 22. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. The King James says that is an abomination. And by the way, if you're if you can't find a human partner and you want animals, verse 23, don't have sex with animals. God pretty much covers it all, wouldn't you say, ladies and gentlemen? What did he leave out? Fish. <laughs> a very comprehensive definition. The seventh here's the point. The seventh commandment protects heterosexuals and homosexuals from defiling and destructive behavior, i.e. from self-destruction. Do not commit adultery. Ah, oh, what is this? Some sort of new and radical concept that Moses brought along? Are you kidding? You can go all the way back to the beginning of the Torah. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. The very first story. So, this is Genesis 2.21. So, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And wow, that would be Adam. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with the flesh. The first surgery in history. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Now, the Hebrew parchments that we've studied do not include Adam's wolf whistle when he sees Eve because you can't put the sound directly into the parchment. But when Adam sees Eve, when Adam sees Eve, the man says, oh boy. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, for she was taken out of man, Ish. Both English and Hebrew do the, show the derivative. And then Moses goes on, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. There it is, ladies and gentlemen, the definition of marriage from the beginning. This definition that has been normative and operative from the start. In fact, you might just jot this down. Marriage is the union of a man and a woman for love and for life. That's marriage. Society hasn't changed it. Neither has God. Listen, you can move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Guess what? Not an iota gets changed. When the incarnated Creator comes down to earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, He quotes that same story. Let's go to... Uh, 
to Matthew chapter 19. Pick it up there in verse 4. Jesus speaking, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, the Creator did, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And then Jesus inserts a warning about tampering with the definition of marriage. Are you listening, Massachusetts State Supreme Court? Of course, I know you're not bound by sacred parchments like this. But Jesus goes on to say, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What God joins, we don't separate. You could read it this way. What God has defined, let not man redefine. Not even the Supreme Court of the state, the sovereign state of Massachusetts, which on November 19, year past, voted 4 to 3, ruled 4 to 3 that a ban on homosexual marriages violates the state constitution and they gave the state legislature 180 days to come up with a compromise or comply with their ruling. It's phenomenal, really. The court's decision to redefine marriage as no longer exclusively the union of a man and a woman flies in the face of societal and sacred history from time immemorial. You know what? The Roman Empire. You remember Rome? In all its decadence, never legalized what Massachusetts is asking for. Perhaps you're wondering, but you know something, Pastor? I think these uh, pivotal passages, I understand them all, yes, yes, but they can be reread, they can be reinterpreted to include monogamous sexual partners, i.e., two men, two women who remain sexually faithful to one another. Well, that's a good point. Let's check that one out. By the way, you need to notice, you need to note a study, and I put this in the study guide for you, a study done recently in Netherlands. You see, Netherlands is one of the eight nations on earth that has legalized gay marriages. And so they did a study in the Netherlands. You're going to have to fill in some numbers here. And they found that the average homosexual relationship lasts only 1.5 years. And that gay men have an average of Eight, right in the number eight. Eight sexual partners per year outside of their primary relationship. It just doesn't work, this monogamous notion. For that very reason, Romans 1, without apology, was inserted into Scripture. I want to go to Romans 1, beginning in verse 24. Another citizen of the Roman Empire wrote these words, Romans 1, 24, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. That's heterosexual, homosexual. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for the perversion. Ladies and gentlemen, please be clear about this. This is not a prophecy about AIDS as some of the televangelists would have us believe. However... It is a prediction of the depths sin will run rampant to if God's moral law is broken with impunity. 
The story of Sodom is not simply a moral tale against male gang rape. It is rather an incontrovertible divine judgment on the practice of sodomy. Genesis chapter 9. Let's put it on the screen. Genesis chapter 19, rather, verses 4 and 5. Before they had gone to bed, that would be the two angel visitors to Lot's house, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Now, I am aware that there is a line of revisionist thinking that attempts to take a line out of Ezekiel 16 and say, you see, really the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah that the Bible finally notes is the sin of inhospitality. My friend, you're absolutely right. If you stop with verse 49, you have to read verse 50. Let's put both verses on the screen, please. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. But you can't stop there. That was a sin in hospitality. But look at this. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. That word in the Hebrew, detestable, is the identical word in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, when God says, when a man lies with a man, it is detestable. It is an abomination. God says, Sodom's sin is sodomy. Clearly, Ezekiel 16 defines that great sin, which is why. Paul is so passionate. And now the good news. Look at this. We're going to end with this text. Paul knows all this. We haven't told him a thing. But he writes 1 Corinthians. I need you to read this one. Not on the screen, but in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Our last text together. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul knows. He knows what Rome, what the empire is like. He knows what our carnal hearts are like. Heterosexual and homosexual. And so Paul comes with this glorious exclamation. Take a look at this. Can you believe this verse is in the Bible? Wow. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll pick it up in verse 9. Paul writing. Do you not know? That the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, Paul, actually, we already, we already had a sense of that one. We knew. Paul goes on. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that would be heterosexual, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, that would certainly be a, include all, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. Now you have homosexual sinners as well. The NRSV renders that last phrase, sodomites. Verse 10, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers. Whoa, it's starting to draw us all in here. Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But here comes the gospel in a single line. But look at verse 11. And that is what some of you were. You were homosexual sinners. You were heterosexual sinners. You were doing that. That is what some of you were. But, hallelujah, you have been washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Did you get that? Did you get it? You were all of that. You were, but then Jesus set you free. You got washed. You got saved. You got sanctified. You got freed. You were, 
But you are no longer. You don't have to keep living with what somebody has tried to tell you is your ball and chain of practice for the rest of your life. You were that. But then Jesus got a hold of you. And you got washed. No matter how dirty you are, you got washed. I got washed. I got saved. Ladies and gentlemen, it is utterly clear that in the Bible, the compelling issue... Would you write this down, please? I think this is your last... Fill in. The compelling issue is not your sexual orientation, but rather your spiritual orientation. That's what counts. And by the way, it is the orientation of the gospel to Jesus. The gospel keeps orienting to Jesus. And that's why there's hope birthed in all of our hearts. Because you know in Luke 15 verse 2 it says of Jesus, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's the good news. I want to say a pastoral word to our homosexual worshipers and our homosexual viewers. I know, I know the church struggles. I know we struggle with trying to learn what does it mean to become like Jesus. We struggle. In our minds, we know that that's the only orientation that counts, that we must become like Jesus. We have not been that for you. We are supposed to be a safe haven. We are supposed to be a safe harbor for embattled sinners. I want to talk to the whole church here as well. How can we possibly, folks, how can we understand each other's pain if we operate under the rules of the U.S. military? Don't ask and don't you ever tell. You see, if we go around through life with these masks on, hurting and bleeding inside, but not able to speak, what has the church done? How can we possibly understand our pain? If you can't share your struggles with someone in the church, if you can't find a trusted friend in the church, if you cannot find a trusted small group, are you listening to me? Turbo group members, a small group where you're safe. If the church cannot, cannot offer that to you, then we will never become the community of Christ. And we might as well shut up and shut down. There's no point in having the church around. Nobody needs the church to make him or her feel guilty. We have enough guilt to go around. I tell you what, if the only time homosexual Christians and homosexual Adventists hear about their personal struggle and pain in church is whenever the church and society decide to debate the subject, it's no wonder there's no community. Along with God's thundering warnings against the practice of sin, we need to embrace His tender compassion for the sinner as well. By the way, jot this down. Isaiah 56 arguably can be directed to celibate male homosexuals. It's one of the most tender passages in Scripture. We're not going to look it up. You go look it up sometime yourself. God speaking to you. To you. Isaiah 56. It exudes the tenderness of a grace-filled God. You know what? The church must demonstrate that same compassion. The church of Christ must learn how to become the community of Christ where heterosexual, homosexual sinners, all of us, can be given a voice for our pain. In C2, in transit. While I'm going through the battle, I need to be able to talk about it. I can't keep 
living a lie. And I need to know that she will not reject me. Because if you go on with that judgmental, critical spirit, I am telling you what, I have seen the way you have treated other sinners. I have seen the way you have snickered. I have seen the way you have sneered. Do you understand why whenever, whenever I'm in your presence, there is absence. There is no community at all. Because I've watched you. Why would I ever dare to open my mouth to you? I struggle. I have my weaknesses. But I would never tell you. Ever. In closing, let it be clear that God's moral law in utter fairness applies the identical sexual standard to both heterosexuals and homosexuals. Whatever your orientation, it does not matter. God calls us all outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. We are all called by God to live just as Jesus did. And that is sexually abstinent and pure. Just like Jesus. Just like Paul. Just like Jeremiah. Just like Anna, just like Mary, outside of God's defined and protective boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman, the high call of Christ to all of us is to sexual abstinence and sexual purity. No double standard. No, 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 no. No social hypocrisy. No ecclesiastical two-timing. Not by Roman Catholic priests or Protestant pastors or any other single human being. God's protective and defining standard is for us all. He doesn't fudge. He doesn't make it easy for some and hard for the others. Martin Luther was writing, and we'll end with Luther. He was writing once to somebody who was saying, Hey, you know what? You know what, Luther? This business of having to live without sex before marriage, this is very hard. And Luther writes, I like this. I, I think we have this in the study guide. Luther writes, some say waiting for marriage is unbearable and aggravating. Here's some good pastoral advice. They're right. It's tough. It's very similar to other difficulties requiring patience that believers must face, such as fasting, imprisonment, cold, sickness, and persecution. How do you like that company? Living without sex is like persecution. You're right, Luther, it is. It's like fasting. It's bad. Oh, Luther goes on, lust is a serious burden. <laughs> you must resist it, university student. You must resist it. Heterosexual, homosexual, who's talking orientation? You must resist it. And fight against it. But after you have, oh, I love this, after you have overcome it through prayer, lust will have caused you to pray more and grow in faith. How many want to pray more in the new year and grow in faith? Raise your hands. Oh, my, live with that lust. Don't yield to it, live with it. So Luther's saying, you'll pray more. You have to to get through. You'll grow more. Jesus knows. Paul knows. You are not walking a path untrodden before you. There have been a host of generations who have gone before you, including Joseph himself. Here we are, beginning a new journey, and I want to make an invitation. Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you rest. I'll wash you. I'll save you. I'll empower you. I'll set you free. You come to me. And so here's my invitation. How about all of us as heterosexual sinners and homosexual sinners? How about all of us?
going arm in arm this new year. Arm in arm. That's what the community of Christ is all about. We can go together with our pain and our struggles and our honesty. We can go together. Yes, we must defend God's law to a lawless world. But in defending God's law, let us not forget to demonstrate God's love.